0: He is risen. Because we have a risen Savior, we have a mediator before the Father who welcomes us to bring our requests to him. Church, let's at this time go before God in a prayer of petition asking his blessing on us. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ bringing our needs as a church before you humbly and seeking your help father even as we come to you now we remember that in so many places around the world this morning our brothers and sisters our true family is unable to gather freely because of hardship and persecution father we pray as a church, that you would strengthen those who are in persecution this morning. Father, we intercede for them and we ask that you would give them endurance and joy even when their meetings are small and secretive. Father, would you give them confidence in the hope of the resurrection today? Father, we pray for other churches as well even as we gather here And we thank you that so many other churches are doing exactly what we are doing this Sunday morning, gathering around our state and around our country and around our county and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. We praise you for Jesus Christ is risen, and we pray that you would bless other churches as they gather. Would your word be clearly proclaimed in this county today? Father, we pray for Renewal Church and Pastor Paul Whitfield. As, as Paul preaches this morning from your word, would you grow their church? Would you deepen them in your word, we pray? Father, we pray for our own body. We're quick to remember those who are hurting in our midst. Father, we pray especially for the widows and widowers that have lost their spouses and are celebrating this holiday uh, alone. Father, we pray especially for uh, those in our midst who have recently lost their loved ones. We pray for Joan Hutchinson. We pray for Sue Medley. Father, we pray for Walt Scrivens. We pray that you would be near to them even today, even now. Father, we need to meet with you now. We need to hear from your word again. We need to be fed with the words of life that are found in your revealed word. So, Father, I pray that you would supernaturally work to open the eyes of our hearts, to give us sight to see according to your word. Father, I pray that you would work in me to speak right now to your people, that we would leave encouraged and worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Uncertainty is crippling, isn't it? Uncertainty just has a way of just stopping us in our tracks. But a a confident hope, a, a firm conviction of what will come, well, that that brings life. Consider with me an example of this. I've shared previously about the American missionary, Adonai Judson. Well, before he left for the mission field, Judson abandoned his parents' faith. Despite being raised in a Christian home, he went off to college, and he grew increasingly less convinced of the claims of Christianity. He met a man by the name of Jacob Eames who argued against revealed religion. Eames ridiculed the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ. So Judson likewise became less convinced. By the time he left college, his uncertainty in God gave way to denial. He went off to New York City, and pursued a career in theater, and he declared to his parents that he was now an atheist. But even in this pursuit of atheism, disillusionment set in. In uncertainty, he, he left and went to travel west. On his, on his first night in his travels, he stopped in a small inn where something profound happened in his life. He came to stay overnight, and the innkeeper came and warned Judson that he only had one room left in the inn, and it was directly next to a man who was dying. It said there was only a small curtain separating their two rooms. Well, Judson took the room, and he then had a a very difficult night sleeping. All night, he could hear the sounds of the man groaning, gasping for breath as he lay dying. And it haunted Judson. It, it left him wondering if this man that he was listening to was prepared to die. He could feel his own uncertainty creeping in. And he felt foolish. What would his friends like Jacob Eames say if they could see him now? Surely they would laugh at the, the terror that he was feeling as he thought over his coming death, and listened to the sounds of this dying man. Listen to his biographer about the next morning. He writes, When Adoniram woke up, the sun was streaming in the window, and his apprehensions had vanished in the darkness. He could hardly believe he had been so weak. He dressed quickly and ran downstairs looking for the innkeeper. And he found his host and asked for the bill, and casually asked whether the young man in the next room was better. He's dead, was the answer of the innkeeper. Judson asked, do you know the man's name? Oh, yes, the innkeeper responded. He was a young man from college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. This was the man that had influenced Judson so profoundly, and he was rattled, lost, lost in death. Jacob Eames was lost, irrevocably lost to his friends, the world, to the future, like a puff of smoke, is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life or death mattered anything. But if he was mistaken, if the scriptures were real, then he was lost for eternity. This, this episode that I'm telling you about would lead to Adonai Z- Judson coming to faith. It would lead him to think about Christ. And his death and his resurrection, and he would become a Christian. You see, this uncertainty is just crippling, but a Christian hope is a firm expectation, a certainty that what God has revealed is true. Today, we Christians celebrate Easter, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's on this truth that our faith stands. We stand on this. We rest on this. It's the center of our our confidence. It's the foundation of our hope. It's our firm expectation. It's where we go to, to not be people of uncertainty, shaken on our paths. So if you've brought your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John. We've been, as a church, studying through the book of Luke, and in light of Re- Resurrection Sunday, we're switching just for today it, to look at John's testimony of this profound account, the account of the empty tomb. It's... Here we've come to John and we find that he's writing this account and his writing so that his, belie- that his readers can see and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that by believing, they might have life in his name. So in this passage particularly that we're going to be in this morning, John wants to give us a hope that leads to belief. To help just focus our attention on this hope, I'm just going to talk through three different points through this text, through this story today. I'll break up my sermon into a sure hope, a necessary hope, and a personal hope. Uh, Or to put this another way, as we look at the empty tomb, I hope to show you how it's true— why you need it, and what it means for you. So let's start with number one, a sure hope. Look at how Christ's resurrection is true. Notice in verse one here of the story, John begins this account in a surprising place. The first witness of the empty tomb doesn't come from a person we might expect, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had just buried Jesus. They were both men of significance, but they weren't the ones to find the empty tomb that morning. John is the eyewitness who's writing this account, but he isn't even the first one to bring this report. No, instead, by God's design, we open up to verse 1, and we find that the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. As many others have pointed out, in the first century, a singular testimony from a woman, especially one disgraced like Mary Magdalene, wouldn't have been the first choice for anyone to choose for this account. If the gospel writer was wanting to fabricate this story, there would have been other characters that would have been more believable that he could have chosen. So here we find this surprising irony. The only way to explain this, we're, we're gonna see time and time again Is that this story actually happened? Mary comes to the tomb early while it's still dark. John emphasizes there in the early morning of dawn. Light and darkness had been a constant theme in this book of the book of John, ever since the first verses of the book. But for Mary, she is still in the dark. She is not only in the physical dark of the morning, but as we now see in these verses, she doesn't yet see what God is doing in this great work. So in verse 2, we read she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice her response doesn't assume the resurrection. Her expectation is that Jesus' body was stolen. Perhaps grave robbers had come in and taken them. That wouldn't have been uncommon. Perhaps she was wondering if one of Jesus' enemies had come in and moved his body. Regardless, it's clear she's not expecting a resurrection at this point. So verse 3 and 4, we see that that Peter and John run to the tomb. John gets there first. He stops at the entrance. Verse 5, look down there. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there but he did not go in. There he is, looking into the tomb, and immediately the potential of grave robbers or foul play was just ruled out, because the linen cloths are still lying there. Now, if the grave had been robbed, they wouldn't have taken the body and left the grave clothes. If the Jews had moved the body for some reason, very unlikely on a Sabbath day, then they would have never have unwrapped it first and left the clothes behind. Something else was going on here. Well, in verse 6, we see that that Peter runs up behind John. And true to Peter's nature, he just rushes into the tomb. And immediately, this scene is verified by a second witness. Sure enough, the grave clothes were lying there in the place that they had been, wrapped up in spices, but now with no body inside. And then there there was the face cloth. Do you see that there? If if you were to go back and, and read, perhaps about Lazarus, back in John chapter 11, how he came out of the grave when Jesus resurrected him from the grave, you would find that he came out with his grave clothes still on. And Lazarus had his face still wrapped up. They had to help unbind him and help him take it off? Well, not so here. Here, Jesus' face cloth was folded up and set aside. It was as if to say, I have no more need of this anymore. Then we get to verse 8. Then the other disciple, who's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and listened to what he says. He says he went in And he saw and believed. John here is giving us his testimony. He's telling us this was the moment that it happened. This is when unbelief became certainty for John. This was the moment. He's remembering back to that day, it seems, while he's writing this. Perhaps thinking back to to standing there in that tomb, in in the dim light staring down and and looking at those grave clothes as he saw with his own eyes, and he believed. His hope here became a a sure hope, a a certain hope. Friends, if you had been reading closely through this book of the book of John, you'd catch the significance of this sentence. He saw and believed. You see, the, the whole book of John was written as a testimony for belief. John had been writing so that people will themselves see the person of Jesus Christ, see the signs that God had given which point to this man, and themselves believe. This theme of belief is just so central for John. Over a hundred times throughout this book, he, he mentions again and again this idea of seeing Christ and believing. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Or even later in this chapter, if you look down at verse 31, We read, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so here we find the climax. Here's here's the moment where it comes all together for John. Here's the moment it happened for him. This is when he saw and he believed in Christ. Fellow Christians here today, Christ is has risen it's true it actually happened this isn't just some story that we read about once a year to to feel a little bit better about ourselves and about what we're saying this is reality he actually rose from the dead the grave clothes were empty and left behind this is a sure and it is a firm foundation for us. Let me just say, by the way, to any non-Christians who are just listening in this morning, if you're here today and you're not quite sure that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, how do you explain this scene? You've got to say something about what happened here. You've got to account for this, this whole story somehow. Either this account and the other eyewitness accounts are true— or they're not. Either Jesus actually rose from the dead, and we must listen very closely to him, or he didn't, and this is a false story. Well, if it is, if you say this story is false, then how do you explain this? How do you explain these eyewitness testimonies, or how do you explain the the empty tomb or the, the grave clothes still lying there? How do you explain that these Jewish men who were profoundly monotheistic, by the way, who uh, believed only in one God, did not have an understanding of the Trinity, suddenly began believing that Jesus Christ was himself God and proclaiming that after they saw this. How do you explain that that happened? How do you explain the beginning of the church overnight following this event? Friends, we have a sure and certain hope. Let me encourage you, look at the resurrection. Look closely. Look at the details. Look at the evidence that we have. Do you believe, like John, the tomb was truly empty? Well, Let's move on. Look at point number two. We have not only a sure hope, we have a necessary hope. Consider why you need this hope. And for this, just focus with me just on verse nine. You see, John had just confessed in verse 8 that he saw and believed. And here he admits to a surprising statement. He says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Notice here, John is talking about himself, self deprecating a bit here. He's admitting his own ignorance. He didn't understand what the Bible had already taught. And by the way, this is even more evidence to the credibility of this account. We see that he didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because he was expecting it already in Scripture. No, he missed the prophecy on this one. He wasn't preconditioned to expect to see this. No, instead, he believed that Christ rose because he was there and he saw the empty tomb and he saw the empty grave clothes. But what catches my attention here is just the necessity of this hope that John points us toward. Peter and John didn't understand that Scripture taught that the Messiah must rise from the dead. I wonder what Scripture is John referring to here. Where in the Old Testament did it teach that this was necessary? Perhaps... John was referring to the specific places across the New Testament. I think of a few. I think of Isaiah 53, verse 10, we read this. We'd re- read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. We shall see his offering, and he shall prolong his days. Clearly, when Isaiah says God will prolong the Messiah's days, he's referring to Christ's resurrection. Or perhaps he's thinking of the book of Jonah, And its explanation in in Matthew 12, where Jesus explained that just as Jonah was was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Or perhaps like the Psalms, which were just constantly filled with echoes of this coming resurrection. Perhaps they missed that, like Psalm 1610, which the psalmist says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Or, or we could go elsewhere. You could go to Hosea 6-2, where we see a, a foreshadowing and, and type of Christ, where it's speaking of the, being raised up on the third day. Perhaps some of these are what, what Peter and John had missed as they looked for the coming Messiah. Or, perhaps, they missed something even greater than this perhaps they missed realizing that the entire underlying development of the Old Testament, all of what scripture as one book cohesively was pointing towards, continuously showed the need for this type of savior. Scripture continuously showed the need for the coming of a savior that was victorious over death. You see, as you read the Bible as one book, as one giant story woven together, we realize that that our fallen world always required a coming Savior who somehow would reverse this problem of death. A coming Savior who somehow would reverse the problem of sin. Resurrection was necessary in order for the promised one to crush the head of the serpent in order for the curse of eternal death to be reversed, in order for death to lose its sting, in order for sin to be conquered, in order for God's people, us, to no longer live controlled by sin, a new life must be created. Christ must rise from the dead. Redemption was accomplished on the cross, but part of it's being applied is uniting to Christ in his resurrection. And so the Messiah was not only put under the curse of sin to pay for our sin, but he was shown to be greater than sin and death in order to have power over our sin. Brothers and sisters, worship Jesus Christ as you see this picture of one who came and was resurrected, showing that he is more powerful than sin and death. This should be true in your life today, as you are united to Christ. Look to Christ in faith. For anyone, again, let me just, I just want to acknowledge I'm speaking so much to, to Christians here as we think about how we live in light of this. But to anyone who's here who's not yet a Christian, let me encourage you that if you aren't united to Christ in faith, then you have no lasting power over sin. That sin and death ultimately still have the last word in your life. And I'm guessing you probably know this to be true. I'm guessing you can probably think of wrong things that you do that you just seem to keep doing and can't stop doing. Sin has power over those who are not in Christ. We are under the curse of sin. Simply believing that Jesus Christ is a good man is not enough. Simply believing that these stories are true is not enough. The Bible teaches that we must understand our sin as an offense before God. We must understand that our sin has separated us from a holy God. And that we have wronged him and are therefore deserving of death. And then only under, as we understand that can we understand that Jesus Christ's coming was good news. Good news. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave so that anyone who would look to him in faith, believing in his work, would be saved. Christ requires only from us that we look to Christ. There's nothing that we do to earn our salvation. We look to him in faith. Let me just encourage you, if you have not done this today, look to Christ. There is no salvation apart from him. Talk to someone, even today, talk to someone about what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the end of the story today, in point number three. You see, our hope is sure. We know that Christ is risen. And our hope is also necessary. It's a necessary hope. We need this. But this does little good for us if it's not also a personal hope. If it's not for us and applied to us. You need this hope. So, number three, a personal hope. What does this mean for us? Verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, we go back to the story of Mary. Follow along as I just read right now, starting in verse 11. We read this Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I I will take him away. So Mary here is just clearly overwhelmed with grief. Four times in, in the text here, you can see that It emphasizes her weeping, verse 11, and then verse 11 again, verse 13, then down in verse 15. She's grieving her Savior. She's she's hurting. She's broken over Christ. It seems also that her grief is especially not merely because of Jesus' death, but because of the horror of having his body moved, the the body being moved and taken while they're still in the grieving process. Anyone who's lost a loved one can just imagine what this must have felt like. Notice back up at verse 2, when she saw the empty tomb, she assumed somebody had moved the body. And, and then she sees these two angels in verse 12, and apparently, from her reaction, she doesn't realize that they're angels. And so when they question her, she explains again that somebody has moved the body. And then before even after interacting more with the angels, she turns and sees Jesus standing there. And doesn't recognize him, gets the same question again, woman, why are you weeping? And a third time, she thinks that the body has been moved. This woman is grieving, and she is not expecting a resurrection. That's what we're seeing in the text. Just like John, the story seems to go out of the way to to prove the point that she is not preconditioned to think that what happened actually happened. She's hurting. She's weeping. Catch the significance of this moment. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and here he is appearing in his glorified body to this woman and through her weeping eyes she doesn't even see him she assumes it's a gardener standing in front of her notice again I I pointed this out earlier notice again the authenticity of this account Uh, this wouldn't make sense to fabricate this story this way to introduce Christ this way more a more sober minded person more reputable person would have been a, a better first eyewitness account of the risen Christ No, the only way that this story makes sense is if it's true If this actually happened that if Christ actually chose to reveal himself to this woman this way And if it is true Then we're left asking Why? Why did Jesus Choose to go to this woman here, in this way? Why did he not first, in his resurrected body, choose to go elsewhere? Why not, perhaps, show up at the temple and and prove to the high priest and to those Pharisees who he was? Or or why not, perhaps, vindicate himself before the, the Romans and Pilate and Herod Or why not start where he'll later go in the middle of all the disciples to show many witnesses all at once that he's risen from the grave? Why not go there? Friends, I suspect that Jesus is wanting to show us something here. You see, our risen Lord's very nature is one of tender love towards those who are his. Our Lord is drawn to us in our heart so much about this text is written in a way that, that emphasizes this, this personal care for this hurting disciple. So much, of, uh, so much so that, honestly, modern critics have just twisted the, the person of Mary Magdalene to, to say gross things about her relationship with Christ that it wasn't. But th- the fact of the matter is, this passage does emphasize just a profound tenderness that our Savior seems to be having as he pursues this woman, who is grieving, is showing his abundant kindness, and he's drawn to her in her anguish. The risen Lord is brimming, is, is overflowing with love for his own. Jonathan Edwards reflected on the nature of our Lord in a sermon, and he, and he writes this. I'm just going to read it. It's, it's too good to not read in full. Listen to what he says. He says, He says, There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is the one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in the world as the sun is brighter than a candle. To the weeping, sorrowful woman, grieving her Savior, Christ shows himself. To the woman who desires to see him more than anything else, he reveals himself to her. Her tears are not lost on him. Verse 16, we read, Jesus said to her, Mary. One word. He calls her by name. We, we can't help but think of John 10, when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. She turns, and in Aramaic, says, Rabboni, which means teacher. What must it have felt like to be Mary at this moment? What must it have been like To have at that moment the simultaneous realization that Christ has risen from the dead. That that realization that everything he had been teaching was true. The stories were all true. Everything that you had ever hoped he would be, he was more than that. What must it feel like to, to realize that? At the same time, she hears her name out of his mouth at the same time that she realizes that he has come and visited her. What a personal kindness and tenderness we are seeing here in our Savior. Our risen Lord, beloved, has the same tenderness for all who are his children. First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach, if you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, our risen Lord has this same tender love for you. If you are a child, a child of him, his love for you is just as profound. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So apparently, as Jesus speaks Mary's name, and Mary immediately recognizes at that moment that this is the Christ, and that he is risen, that somehow he has is, is come back from the dead. Well, she just grabs at him. She, she clings to him. She r- r- runs and, and holds on to him. Uh, what's happening here? What is Jesus saying as he then almost put, gently pushes her off? I think D.A. Carson is helpful. He says, he kind of paraphrases this, saying, you don't have to hang on to me as if I'm about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I need to be jealously guarded. Stop clinging to me, but, but go and tell my disciples that I am in the process of ascending to the Father. So he sends Mary to tell the others. And even as he sends her out, did you notice what he said? Did you notice how he brings in all his disciples into this close family language? He says, go tell my brothers. I'm going to my father and to your father. To my God and your God. Jesus is showing this, this shared privilege that all of his disciples have who are now in him Christ is not afraid or ashamed to call us his brother friends the hope that Jesus Christ brings is a personal one he knows us personally and he welcomes us in he gives us personal access to the father not only that but he brings us into this new family did you see that there? We are together, brothers and sisters now, in him, under the Father. We are now most fittingly at home when we are together as one family before him. We should conclude. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ here is our bedrock source of unwavering hope. You remember I started the story with that inn and that dying man in the next room. Well, frankly, all of us will one day face death just as vividly as Judson did that day. And just like Judson, even though we don't often have it in front of our faces, it's right to think about. We need a certain hope. So if you want a genuine hope, start by looking to the resurrection. Christ actually rose from the dead. This gives us a sure hope. You can confidently stand on it. But that that sure hope is no good unless it's necessary. And we see that he must indeed rise. We can have confidence in the necessity that Christ needed to defeat sin and death. But friends, it can be sure and it can be necessary. But it will not be sufficient for you until it is your personal hope. So church, let us turn to Christ. Let us run to him. Won't you run to him today like Mary? Won't you desire him with that same earnestness? Won't you worship him, our Lord, who is now ascended to the Father? May this be true of our church today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We praise you for his work on the cross, and we praise you now for how we see his resurrection in your word. Father, I pray that you would work in us this confident hope that we would truly see and believe like John. Father, I pray that this would draw us closer together as a family, as as one body underneath our Father. Work this in us today, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ.